0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. I have the passage there for you in the bulletin with an outline. Paul, here in chapter 3, as you know, really you could say in the whole of the letter to the Ephesians, is painting a glorious picture of his salvation. Salvation applied to us as people, as individual believers who are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but also he's building towards the bigger picture of what God is doing. He's calling a people to himself. He's saving a people to himself. And it shifts from individual focus to the corporate focus of his putting together a building, a spiritual building, a holy temple in the Lord. And you, brothers and sisters, are each independent, Living stones put together to make this building that God has continued to build from the first century on, really before that, counting all those who were called to himself. But what's so beautiful about the message of the, to the Ephesians is Paul's giving revelation about something that was only starting to come to light. God's plan for his people would not be a continued the Jews and the Gentiles are now Christians. It's that distinction's wiped away and in Christ we're unified in one person. Don't underestimate how revolutionary that kind of teaching would be. And you know what would be revolutionary today if we said all boundaries between people are done away with only in Christ. Now, we know that's true biblically, but think of all the ways in which we divide ourselves in our culture, um, in our, by classes, by races, by religions, by all these various things, gender, you name it. Whereas here in Christ now, We are unified as one body. It's the great mystery that Paul opens up. The gospel of Christ brings people together, brings us together with God when our sins are forgiven, but now we're brought together as individuals, different people brought together. No more distinctions like that should be acknowledged in the presence of God. So this great picture of Ephesians is a picture of the church, the importance of the church for manifesting God's glory in this gospel that he has given us. So I pick up now verse 7 of chapter 3, where Paul is expressing to the Ephesians something of his apostolic calling. This is important because the church is supposed to carry this calling on. Here, as I read God's holy word Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have Boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are opening your word this morning with an expectation that you will be feeding us. Where our focus is lacking, please draw us to careful attention. Lord, if we have... Come here not believing or maybe wavering in our faith. Please, by your Holy Spirit, give us faith to hear and understand that we might lay hold of the riches of Christ today, especially as we read your word in this section of Ephesians. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you why Paul wrote this book of Ephesians, you might be tempted to say, especially in a Reformed and Presbyterian church, Well, that's an easy one. Paul wrote this to teach us about God's plan for the church, for his sovereignty, about his election. You might be tempted to highlight the rich teaching about God's sovereignty in answering that question. Why did Paul write this? about his Holy Spirit given to us so that we would be adopted, justified, and adopted. It would ultimately be about our glorification because Ephesians has it all. And the Presbyterian church, especially a Reformed church, loves Ephesians for good reasons. We should. But I think that the question isn't being answered correctly when we answer that way. It's true all of these things are taught, and he teaches us these things. But if you look at verse 13, it will put a more... Personal touch on this book, a more pastoral reason for why Paul writes. Look at verse 13. It's the first time we get something real personal from Paul about his motivation to write. Now, it's the Holy Spirit motivating by God's providence, I know. But there's some human reason on the first level that Paul is prompted to write this letter to a church that he loved. He spent over almost three years with them, discipling them. They lived in a terrible area of the world for Christianity. It was against the backdrop of the temple of Diana. Every reason to be pressed, and now Paul was gone from them. Worse yet, Paul's in jail. And so in verse 13, this is why Paul wrote, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. The Ephesians were in danger of losing heart, or he would not have said that in verse 13. So they are discouraged, they are disheartened right now. In our native instinct, when things go bad or they feel bad, is to lose heart. And Paul knows this. We become in danger of being disheartened. These are relatively new believers Paul's writing to, mostly Gentile believers as we know. They don't have the background in the Bible that some of the Jewish believers would have had. They were living in a place with terrible immorality and perversion all around them. Many of them came out of it and were probably tempted back to it. This massive temple dedicated to Artemis right over their shoulders. Now Paul, their pastor, the one who had personally discipled them, was not only a long way from them, it didn't look like he was going to get out. He was in jail in Rome. Every human reason to become disheartened. So Paul writes Ephesians. And he reminds them of their salvation. He reminds them of everything he had been teaching them when he was with them. He reminds them to lay hold of those truths. Know that God is sovereign over every aspect of your life. Your salvation he's holding, he will not let go, and he has you on to the end. And by the way, there's a plan for the church. And the church ultimately, as it is built over over the years and over the centuries, over the globe, at some point, the glory of God will be revealed in the church. Know this for sure, Ephesians. This is why he's writing these truths. Yes, it's to teach us these things, but it's to hearten you. It's to give you encouragement where you might become disheartened. Verse 13. So I ask you, so I, in light of what I just wrote in chapter 1, 2, and part of 3, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. Just because I'm stuck in jail. Just because you're worried about me. Don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you. So the letter is meant to hearten us. These truths are meant to give Christians encouragement, whatever they're facing. The revealing of these truths are intended to lift every spirit in this place because when we understand the purposes of God with us, we then can persevere in disheartening times whenever they come. And they come. When we comprehend our calling, what God is working through His church then we become energized and inspired even. We see in these verses, 7 to 13, that our purpose as God's holy temple that he's building, his church, is very simply to make Christ known. Uh, not just by preaching. That's, that's the foundation. That's the first part of the apostolic ministry you see from Paul. But God's going to do his work through the preaching of the word to build his temple, and people will notice it. And Christ will become known by transformed people. We'll see that. Also, though, it's not just the world watching. It's the heavenly beings. This is a display God's putting for the universe. And even the angels will recognize what's happened when the gospel of Christ is brought to bear and sinners are forgiven, and they are unified in one people. They're not separated like human beings are normally. The heavenly host will recognize Christ through this and have to give praise to him. And all of this will give us boldness because we're in Christ to be able to manifest Jesus, to be the church, to do the thing we're called to no matter what. To remember our identity is to represent Christ to the world and to the universe through what God is doing. That's the purpose of the holy temple, to make Christ known. Let's look first at 7, verse 7, as we see the apostolic ministry of Paul. Now, it's yes, it's true. We're not apostles, But the apostolic ministry was a carrying on of Jesus' ministry by commission. And Jesus gave them special empowerment to do it. The apostles then give us the example, if you will, about what's most important, about the core or kernel of the message that we give. So Paul's talking about what he was commissioned to do. Then after the apostles, the deposit of the apostles is the word of God, the Bible. And we then carry on in like manner the proclamation of this word the apostolic word, which is the word of Christ. That's how the succession works when Paul's talking about his commission. What does that mean for us? It means we emulate what we have seen demonstrated in the apostles. Verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I was made a minister or a servant according to the gift of God's grace. So God gave something for him to carry out the commissioning he had as a servant of the gospel of Christ. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. This is a mention of God's power in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. It's God's prompting and empowering and commissioning. This is God's work, and Him doing this and their witnessing Paul do it, is an encouragement to them about how this will continue on. The gospel is simply that good news of Christ and about Christ, that he came to die for our sins, was raised again. Paul called on people to believe on Christ, to trust on him. And there's something more that he gives to the Ephesian people. They've heard this from him before. He's also revealing to them the mystery that had not been known before related to the gospel. Now because of this unifying gospel, anyone who trusts in Jesus, rests in him, shall be saved. That means we're on equal ground with one another in Christ. This is the point of unifying the church between the Jews and the Gentiles, which, by the way, means the Jews in every other tribe, tongue, and the nation that would come to Christ. This is a beautiful picture of the church in its multicolored nature, in the beauty of the diversity that exists in the church on the one hand, but the unity we have in Christ. According to the gift of God's grace, he's given this commission so that he can make the gospel of Christ known. And how does he make it known? Verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, so very humbly he comes, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. To preach what? Synonymous now with the gospel, this beautiful term. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, notice verse 8 closely. Paul knew of his unworthiness. He certainly had all the academic acumen and professional acumen one would need to have credibility. But he had been a persecutor of the Christians, the worst of all, even using the Bible to persecute them. He knew of his unworthiness on his own. He could not come as an apostle of Christ on his own merit. So he knew he was the least of these in this sense. He always carried that humility with him. He recognized he could not come on his own strength. And you should not be impressed with me, Paul would say, on anything based on me. That's what Paul would say. When he wrote to the Corinthians earlier than this book, he said to them, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace of God permeates his writings it permeates him as a person. And it ought to permeate all of us. We should have that attitude that we are the foremost of sinners like Paul. We don't know the ranking of our sins, thankfully, but we know it's bad enough. And we could think of ourselves as the foremost. That's the right way to think. As soon as you start thinking someone else is a greater sinner, you're forgetting how bad off your sin really is. And and you're failing to recognize the grace that's necessary. And what's grace? Grace is God's kindness shown to people who actually deserve his wrath. It's not just kindness shown to anybody. It's someone who's actually acted violently against him, but he shows kindness to them even though they deserve judgment, and the reason he does it is because someone else has taken their place. That's the unique grace of God. So many terms in just two verses, but recognize every one of them because they give us depth of understanding. When Paul was writing to a pastor in Ephesus, as a matter of fact, Timothy, listen to how he describes his apostolic ministry. That's uh, the foundation for preaching the gospel. He says to Timothy, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Again, Paul writing to Timothy. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So when Paul's preaching the gospel, he never gets far from himself in his need for the gospel. So as I preach the gospel to you, be sure in my mind I'm thinking this is for me. This is exactly what I need, and that's why I may be passionate about you needing it. Because I know you do, too. I'm sure you do. And I'm the worst of them. I'll say that. But all of us need this grace God's shown us, and Christ is the way that we are right with him. and That's the gospel. That's what the apostle was commissioned to preach. And that's what he says, even to Timothy. He knows this is the gospel. It's meant to be preached. But I am the foremost, he says further in 1 Timothy 1. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So I would say to you, at least on the onset, don't fret your weakness as though it's a hindrance to the gospel. Paul used his weakness, his acknowledged weakness, as a way to boldly go and say, this is the way that we could be right with God. That's the preaching of the gospel that is the apostolic mantle that the church carries on by preaching this word, the apostolic word, the biblical word. Paul's background might have disqualified him. No one here can say that you should be more disqualified than Paul. Not one of you could do it. I'm confident not one of you could, do, could say that. Yet he used Paul in this way. And so we are here to make Christ known no matter the circumstances. Paul was humble about his apostolic mantle. He did not see himself worthy of the calling. And I love this term for the gospel itself. Look at verse 8, the last part. To preach to the Gentiles, that was a specific focus, especially in Ephesus, but really across his missionary journeys. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is used in synonymous parallel with the gospel in verse 7. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Think of that as a way of describing knowing Christ, trusting in him, believing on Jesus. If you believe on Jesus, you know how unsearchable his riches are. Incalculable. Untraceable. His riches, the riches of Jesus Christ, are completely beyond measure. Any human measure. You can't fathom all the benefits of Christ. It wasn't too long ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I was sitting next to an older man who had just lost his son. It, it was a heavy time of mourning and considering the loss of his son, the untimely loss of his son. And I just sat with him as I tried to do. And, I, you know, you all know I like to talk, but there are times I can't talk. And those are such times where you're just grieving with people and you're just trying to be there. And every once in a while, someone would say something try to comfort. And he leaned over to me, older man in the faith, pious, pretty quiet overall. I've known him for several years. As we're mourning together, he said, Tony, I I was thinking about my brother right now who's really messed up over what's happened. And I'm just concerned with what he's thinking, how he's dealing with this. And he paused for a little bit, and in tears he said to me, I don't think he knows the riches of Christ. I knew exactly what he meant. He was saying at that moment, he needed his faith in Christ to hold him at the loss of his son. And he knew that someone else may not have that. And he described them as the riches of Christ. They're able to pay for or provide whatever we need in life and eternity. And Paul speaks about preaching the gospel. And then he says in verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The many benefits that we receive in union with Jesus can't quantify them all. One commentator says, Unsearchable riches suggests the picture of a reservoir so deep that surroundings cannot reach the bottom of it. No limit can, therefore, be put to its resources. Christ represents an enormous expanse of riches that extends far beyond the horizon. And we, the church, the people of God, are meant to display that. We're meant to share that. We're meant to express that. We're meant to make him known and his riches known. In Romans chapter 11, the depth of the riches and the, knowledge, the wisdom and knowledge of him. Oh Lord, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. The person and work of Christ beyond all measure and he is who we are to make known. Now I want you to notice in verse 8, a shift happens from verse 8 to verse 9 to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now we're talking about Jesus, the gospel, believing on him. But now there's something that's enhanced about what's said there, and this refers back to the mystery that Paul introduced earlier, which is now, through the gospel, Jews and Gentiles are together. Verse 9, To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So the second way in which we make Christ known isn't expressly by preaching as such, it's the actual, as we are the benefactors of salvation, as God builds his church, as we grow in his grace, in the gospel initially and through his gospel, as we walk with him and grow in him, as he perfects his church, and as he brings us in unity together, as different people put down their self-interest and love one another in Christ, no matter what other things might divide us, when we look at something and say, I am not going to let that divide us, based on what we have been saved from. We can get over that. When we say that about a great many things, then we manifest Christ to a watching world when they see us functioning as reconciled sinners, reconciled to God through the gospel, and then reconciled to each other because we know our peace with God. We're making God's plan and work of redemption known simply by being the church. Verse 9, Paul saying, what is apostolic work is? Through the people of Ephesus, through the people at Redeemer. And to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery? The mystery is the unifying of the Jews and the Gentiles. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who, by the way, is so powerful, don't forget, he created all things. The reference to his being creator is to say there's nothing he can't do. So it may look like to you that the temple of Artemis is more powerful than my promises about the gospel and the church, but they're not, because I created everything. And even this thing that human hands built that's called a great wonder of the ancient world, I made all the stuff that they made it with. It's a reminder that his promises are attached to his being the creator God. And this is what Paul is there to bring light to. The gospel and what it does in the life of the church, through the church, this disclosure of God's new era of God's redemption will shed light so that all can see and give him praise. As people come to Christ through the preaching of the gospel, the natural reaction when they see people changed under this, what's going on here is what people say. And that's what Paul knew would happen. He already knew what was happening with the Ephesians. The letter he's writing to them is a pastoral letter to keep them prompted, to keep them motivated in the spirit, if you will, to grow, to be encouraged, to stand up under the threat of being disheartened. And he knows they'll be heartened when they recognize what God's doing. To bring light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things? I think we misunderstand or we underestimate how powerful a witness the church is to the world just by being the church as God calls us to be the church. The simplicity of the church, the depth of the church, the, the gifts that God gives to the church. Few of them in their profound sense, but they're big ones. They're means that God gives us to become more like his son, to be more convicted like him, to be brave, to know that we should follow him. When the church is strengthened like this, before you even say a word, you're noticed. There's something about us that people have to say. What makes them walk that way? This is what Paul wants the Ephesians to remember about all these deep truths he's teaching. Making God's redemptive plan known is part of how God draws people to himself and he makes it known through the church. Look down at verse 11. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's been his plan to move in this direction through Christ. To give the the second person of the Godhead a people to redeem. For him to redeem them and keep them perfectly and offer them to the Son... Perfected, or to the Father, perfected, all of this on display for people to see Him doing it. The church, being the church, this is a display of something supernatural. And I think this is what Paul's describing when he just describes the Ephesians and describes the way this has worked. Now, I would say to you at this point, as a way of applying this call God has for the church, if it's true, and I think it is true, that God is sanctifying, maturing His church, growing us together, growing us in the likeness of Christ, giving us a heart like Christ has towards others. If that's happening, and we see God doing it, in any way you see it at all, that should invigorate you to be absolutely vigilant for the unity of the church. Because the centrality of the church is not in doubt here, not in Ephesians. It's the main way God brings the message of Christ. It's the way God makes Christ known. So we should really be guarded about anything that would divide. And there's a lot that can divide, isn't there? But we should give pause to anything that would make us bring division because of what we see on display here, this great unity of the church purchased by the gospel and the way God ordains for others to see the truth of this gospel. It's the very word that Jesus prayed in John 17 when he asked the Lord to give us unity so that people would believe that Christ was sent. We should strive with everything we have to maintain our unity in Christ according any possible divi- across any possible division there could be. Well, the working of God's redemptive plan through Christ speaks to people around us with words of the gospel itself, but then also by what's happening in the redemption of the people of God. So the nations see, people see. But there's another audience I mentioned, and the passage mentions the audience. It's bigger than just who's on earth. This is the unseen world. This is the heavenly places referred to earlier in Ephesians. Referred to in other places in Scripture, that which goes on that you cannot see, the angelic beings, the angelic world, um, that which God is is sovereign over as well, and making a proclamation to. Notice what it says in verse 10, as we are making Christ known, not just on earth, but in heaven, to the praise of his glory. Verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God, who created all things, now verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known, where? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is just about what's going on on earth. This is for the universe to see. That the manifold wisdom of God can be seen and witnessed by every being, even the ones you can't see but exist. Through the church, this would happen. Little old us that angels would pay attention to by God's ordaining. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom, what could be on display? Well, this redemption that we have in Christ, first of all, this unity we have that makes no heavenly sense based on who fallen man is. So if man could be unified, that must come from heaven. And God's telling all the angels to watch this, see what happens when I do this work of redemption. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. There's something beautiful about this word here, manifold It's actually a word that could literally be put as multicolored, multifaceted, manifold. There's so much about the wisdom of God that has worked together to save a people for himself, even the way he does it, through the death of Christ, through the incarnation first, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, then to unify people, to take away distinctions and make them one in Christ. The manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God. It could be known to everybody, and they could see God's wisdom. His wisdom in building his church has to do with how he is able to reach his own goals in full, full view of all the universe. He can reach his own goals in ways that are best and most consistent with his character, and all we could say when we see it is praise him. And all the angels could say when they say it is praise him. And if it's the demons he's talking about, they will know their defeat, When they see that the redemption that he promised from Genesis 3 is happening. It's happening in Christ and it's unfolding. You can't stop it. The head of the serpent's crushed. This is the beautiful message on full display for the heavenly, the high heavenlies, as some commentators put it. The word translated manifold. It's such a rich word. I have to share this with you. The New American Standard says it as manifold as we have here too. It was used to describe everything from the intricate and colorful design of flowers To embroidered cloth, that's manifold or multicolored, woven carpets, and even crowns with their exquisite jewels. And this is the word used to describe the manifold wisdom, the beautiful, colorful wisdom of God. Just like the unsearchable riches of Christ's grace, the manifold wisdom of God to apply salvation in angels and demons see it and know that God is God. And he will win this. Now, if you are the Ephesians and you're discouraged, or if you are in Redeemer today and you're discouraged, are you not encouraged to know what he's doing, even in the downcast state that Paul was and the Ephesians were? God's still doing this work, and it's on full display for people to see and for the heavenly places to see as well. The rulers and authorities are on guard. They see, as the building of the church goes on, There's an audience watching this construction. The great salvation of mankind through Christ is on full display to the heavenly realms. Our unity in Christ's body, the church, shows the truth of this. We're preaching to the angels about God's power and his wisdom and his reconciliation and his redemption and his ongoing work. And we're preaching to the angels that this is true and that he is true as this happens. Yes, it's true. The church is the display of God's reconciling work first with him and then between sinners who are also redeemed. It's a beautiful picture. One commentator said, it is the church's existence as a multicultural and multi-ethnic body dwelling in unity that the church witnesses to the power of the new creation. Normal humans, fallen humans brought together, redeemed by Christ, and then made one so that people see and the angels see, and they have to admit that God is sovereign. The church is the temple of God that displays God to the world. Finally, I want you to see what the result of this is. It's like Paul forecasts as he's giving them this, um, is a bit of a spiritual exhortation in the middle of his book. We see here that because of what he's speaking of, there's a boldness that we have in Christ who are united to. He's not expecting them just to get excited or encouraged on the basis of his words alone, but it's the truth of his words, who they're united to, that gives them substance to go out and be courageous concerning verse 11. This this unfolding that he's speaking of was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he brings it back to Christ. The way this can help you Ephesians, or people of Redeemer, is this is all in Christ our Lord. You are in Christ by faith in him. You have union with Jesus. We're a priesthood of all believers because of this relationship. So it's on this basis that you too, like Paul in prison or wherever you may find yourself, under duress or under great blessing, whatever the case, you're a person in Christ. You're in union with Christ. And that makes all the difference for how you live. And move. Verse thirteen, or verse eleven again, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse twelve. In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence. Through our faith in him. This is a boldness and access to God, the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God of salvation, the God who can say to the angels, Watch what I've done, that God, you can go into his room and you can appeal to him through Christ. In Christ. Is as the Son can go into the presence of the Father, so can any child of God go into the presence of his father or her father, because we are in Christ. He will never turn us away. That boldness of access to God, the one we really ought to be scared of or fearful of, the only one we really should fear. And you don't have to fear him in Christ. So who can we fear? Who should we fear? What a message to the Ephesians, to us, to all of us. There's no reason to fear. In whom we have boldness, Jesus himself, and access with confidence through our faith in him. What an amazing scene. Here's Paul in Caesar's prison in Rome. And he's saying, I'm not, worried, I'm not worried about Caesar's not the one I'm worried about. God's the one I should be worried about, and I have bold access through Christ. Who's Caesar in that light, in any real sense? Hearing Paul speak like this, rooted in truth, tells the Ephesians who are tempted to lose heart because he's in prison, it encourages them, it heartens them when they hear Paul speak like this. And he roots it in Jesus. It's not just Paul talking positive. This is Paul rooting it all in Christ. It has substance to it. Union with Jesus Christ, a key doctrinal point in Ephesians and in the Bible, is brought to bear here in a very practical way. You do not stand before any enemy or any trial or any difficulty or any challenge alone. You are in union with Christ. And we are in union together. It's a a double union. In union with Christ, in union with the rest of the church, his holy temple, his household, his kingdom, citizens together therein. In the book of Hebrews, the author says something along these same lines that are also encouraging words that I share with you. The author there says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Our confession is in Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. When isn't there a time of need, by the way? Back to our passage. In whom Christ We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, brothers and sisters, what is Paul writing here in Ephesians? Well, we see it's rich, it's deep, it's powerful. We are getting a a look behind the curtain, so to speak, to see the great work and plan of God through Christ and his church. We are also seeing why he wrote this letter. So I ask you not to lose heart Over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory? Which is your celebration? Which is the picture of your end or the securing of your end that's to come? This beautiful picture of suffering will now begin a theme that is mentioned again in Ephesians. Suffice to say, uh, we'll have much time to focus on how suffering plays in. But I'll leave you with this thought from Sinclair Ferguson about this passage Suffering and glory go hand in hand for Paul. We see it there in the last phrase of verse 13. The relationship is never simply chronological. Suffering now, glory then. It is causal. Glory because of suffering. Indeed, for Paul, suffering is the raw material out of which glory is created. And Paul writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit according to the providence of God for us to have for the ages so that we would not lose heart. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, if we are tempted to lose.